Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And today we will be talking about on the show the marriage of priests, something that... uh, was definitely a problem in the historical church at the time of the Reformation, but is still yet uh, a very hot topic still today, uh, especially for our opponents, the Roman Catholic Church, the opponents in terms of the Augsburg Confession and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. But uh, as we seek to see what Christ teaches us about marriage, and especially as it pertains to clergy and, and what is good and godly, we'll be discussing that as we get into this Article 23 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession today. And to do so, we have most of our cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians with us today. We have Pastor Merritt Dembski, Pastor Peter Hill, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith. And brothers, it's good to have you here. And, and for our listeners, if you want to get like a live look in of the studio and just see how goofy Pastor Ill really is. Don't um, take much. You can also go on Facebook and watch us live there at KFUO Radio and uh, and get a live look in there. Of course, we are also uh, a show that you can interact with. You can ask your questions, especially as this uh, uh, continuing topic of much debate into our, our day and age continues today with the Marriage of Priests. You can call 1-800-730-2727. You can email us at kfuo at kfuoradio.org. Yeah, that sounds right. And also find us on social media at KFUO Radio. Radio. All right. How about we just go ahead and jump into this article? We're setting up another article. We we covered one article um, in, in last week's show. And uh, there we we kind of mentioned this issue um, that uh, the, these articles in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, as they were in the Augsburg Confession themselves, Articles 22 through 28, um, they're responding to specific abuses uh, that were going on in the church at that time. And, and specifically, they were saying why we as Lutherans made changes that we did in our Lutheran churches, those who were following uh, the teachings of the Augsburg Confession and what Luther himself uh, began there in the Reformation. And so these were specific abuses that had to be corrected. And uh, we kind of mentioned, you know, when we covered Article 22 last week, how both kinds in the Lord's Supper, that's one that post the Vatican II reforms in the 1960s, really not much of an issue in the church anymore. You see it every once in a while still in Roman Catholic churches uh, with some of the older members and so forth. Uh, but th- but that one really has been reformed and gone by the wayside. Some of these articles, though, in Articles 22 through 28 of those abuses in the church continue to be issues that we differ on uh, to this day. And, and one of those, of course, is this Article 23 on the marriage of priests. So, so brothers, anything you want to say about these kind of articles of abuses in the church that need correction and, and, and this article and that matter? Just that it's a helpful reminder <clears throat> that I need to clear my throat before I speak. <laughs> um, just a helpful reminder that theology and all this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like a whole bunch of people sat down. And it's like, I got an idea. Let's disagree about something. 
instead it's there's something going on and you get the the creeds written in response to to things being misstated you get the the confessions being written to respond to issues going on so it's helpful because a lot of times i think we're we're led to believe that you just got a whole bunch of old guys sitting in a room making up stuff but it's like nope we've got what scripture says and then when someone starts to say something that's not in accord with scripture you got to start pushing against it and laying out why you'd push against it and all that kind of stuff in a loving and caring way. I think the other important thing to think about as we jump into this article today is that while it is technically about the marriage of priests, it is ultimately about the wonderful gift that God has provided in marriage. And so not only are we talking about the marriage of priests, we're just talking about the very good gift that marriage is. And that's kind of a a sub-theme to all of this, or maybe an overarching theme would be a better way to say it, that hey, marriage is a great thing and it is a gift of God. Let's focus on it being a gift of God and not make a a different class of Christian out of people who are celibate or people who are married. Well, and it's kind of interesting. It had been a while since I had looked through this. And so in reviewing and prepping for the show today, looking back through and seeing all of the different areas that this does touch on, because if you were just looking at the uh, the headings and be like, ah, Okay, I get what that one's about. But as you see the arguments and how they're laid out, like you just said, you see uh, so much else tied into this of what gifts there are, what is uh, natural and, you know, like all that kind of stuff and how we live as human beings. But that pertaining to the fact that priests are human beings as we all are, (laughs) you know. So. Yeah, and, and picking up on several things that both of you were pointing at there too, you know, definitely the 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 first several articles of the Augsburg Confession through Article Twenty One, um, you know, they're, they're dealing with important theological issues that you know, um, as you said, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We're we're not just looking to. Uh, be different than them uh, or, or start fights or anything of that nature. They're important theological issues that, that deal with how we rightly understand our faith and life in Christ. And, and these last seven articles of which we see abuses going on in the church tend to take on the more practical nature, I think, if I, if I can say it that way. And, and especially what you were saying there, Pastor Hill, that, you know, when we take a look at what God's good gift of marriage is, then that will inform our theology and how that plays out. Uh, and we certainly saw that with both kinds in the Lord's Supper as well, that, you know, what's the theology behind this practice that developed? And, uh, and, and we'll also see that playing out with marriage here. And, and it's not just, you know, oh, we're different than you. We're not Catholic anymore and things like that. And we're looking and to throw the baby out with the bathwater is sometimes gets ascribed to Lutherans, you know, that, oh, we don't do that because that's too Catholic or things like that. Uh, and we've talked about that many times on this show. That, that's not the nature of behind this at all. Um, there, there's actual theological matters and what God has told us in his word is good for human life um, and, and good for life as his believers um, uh, are good. And so we, we're looking to conform our practices to that and, and deal with these abuses that are leading consciences and people astray from a good way of life. All right. That, that, that was my cue. If you're watching on Facebook, they both just stared at me. So that's my cue that we're good on that. All right. So let me go ahead and uh, read the editors. Oh, well, I no, just, I just you did want to say, say something. All I wanted to say just was something that helps with those awkward silences. It's I listen to everything afterward on double speed on podcasts. And so this goes so much quicker and all these awkward silences <laughs> and terrible jokes just go so much faster. They're just normal silences and fast, awkward jokes. Exactly. Well, to exactly. give no time for good that, let's just go ahead and read 
read the editor's note on Article 23 of the Augsburg Con- Apology of the Augsburg Confession of the Marriage of Priests. The note says this. In this article, Melanchthon rebuts the confutation's argument that priests should not marry. He anchors his argument in the institution of marriage at creation. Marriage is a divine ordinance that the church cannot contradict. Lengthen is not saying that a minister who chooses to remain celibate should be married. Rather, he insists that the church cannot command men to be celibate who want to be ministers in the church, when clearly the gift of celibacy is reserved only for a very few. Nowhere in the Bible is forced celibacy or forced marriage tied to ministry. The apostles were both married and single. Priestly celibacy is yet another example of anti-scriptural traditions in the Roman Church, and I think that that just puts it in a, in a great light. There, you know that uh, well, you're commanding something, and, and either way you command it. I mean, if I say, uh, and this actually happened in the Lutheran Church at one time, it wasn't quite commanded, but um, uh, even even from our alma mater, Concordia St. Louis, I've talked to older pastors. Uh, s- several of them have passed on now because it has been several years since this was the practice. But they would go out on their vicarage, and they weren't really allowed to be married. Um, most of the time, they were single but by the time they came back they better like have someone lined up to get married because they wouldn't (laughs) receive a first call into a parish unless they were married and it's like okay maybe we're commending something good but we can't force it upon you right and and thankfully that's not the the practice anymore i'm now very happily married uh for over a year to to a wonderful woman uh but i was a pastor for a long time as a single pastor and and uh you know it, it 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 has its blessings and curses on either end of this. And so let's take a look at what is God saying about marriage and let that guide how we make right decisions for how we serve in the office of holy minister or any other vocation and and not go against scripture and, and get into commanding and legalism kind of things. And that's really going to get picked up in the first few paragraphs here uh, where they they really make a an, an appeal, especially Philip Melanchthon does, to the emperor, Charles V, of Hey, we know that our opponents are asking for a uh, an edict or a law from you about this, but we ask that you not give them one, uh, because Scripture doesn't give one, and if Scripture doesn't give one, maybe in the church's affairs it's best for you not to give one either. Yeah, they're they're asking for a civil law to support their um, churchly law, ecclesiastical law, and 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 it's just kind of a. An unfortunate thing, but how do, how about we just go ahead and read the the first several paragraphs and then comment on? Is that okay? All right, let's do that. All right, so I'm going to go actually through uh, paragraph six here. So it's a little bit lengthy of a reading. Um, it, it it might sound like on the radio, but at double speed or so, as Pastor uh, Dembski likes to listen to, it's not quite as bad. So we'll mm-hmm. we'll just go ahead and read it. Then. Being the being the Star Wars guy, you know, warp speed. Okay, you know, so all right. Star well, Trek. Oh, all no, right, I said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Picking up with paragraph one of Article 23 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. In spite of the great scandal about their filthy celibacy, the adversaries arrogantly defend pontifical law under the wicked and false excuse of the divine name. They even encourage the emperor and princes to the disgrace and scandal of the Roman Empire to not allow the marriage of priests. This is how they speak. Wherein any history can one read of greater rudeness than this of the adversaries? We will review their arguments later. Now let the wise reader consider how shameful these good-for-nothing men are. They claim that marriages produce scandal and disgrace to the government, as though this public scandal of criminal and unnatural lust glowing among these very holy fathers were a great ornament to the church. 
while they pretend that they are Curie and live like bacchanals. Most things done with the greatest license by these men cannot even be named without a breach of modesty. These are their lusts, which they ask you to defend with your chaste right hand, Emperor Charles. In parenthetical remarks, certain ancient predictions name you as king of modest face, for the saying appears about you, one modest and face shall reign everywhere. That's the end of the parenthetical remark. Contrary to divine law, the law of nations and the canons of the councils, they ask you to break apart marriages, to punish innocent men horribly merely for the sake of marriage, to put priests to death whom even barbarians reverently spare, to exile banished women and fatherless children. They bring such laws to you, most excellent and most chaste emperor, to which no barbarity, however monstrous and cruel, could lend its ear. But because disgrace or cruelty does not stain your character, we hope that you will deal with us mildly in this matter, especially when you have learned that we have the weightiest reasons for our belief taken from God's word, which the adversaries reject with the most silly and vain opinions. Nevertheless, they do not seriously defend celibacy. They are not ignorant of how few there are who practice chastity. They create a counterfeit religion for their domain, which they think the celibacy helps. So we understand that Peter was right to advise that there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, Second Peter 2, 1. The adversaries say, write, or do nothing truly, frankly, and candidly in this entire case. They actually argue only about the domain they falsely think is in danger and which they try hard to support with a wicked excuse of godliness. We cannot approve this law about celibacy that the adversaries defend because it conflicts with divine and natural law and disagrees with the very canons of the councils. It is clearly superstitious and dangerous. It produces countless scandals, sins, and corruption of public morals. Our other disagreements need some discussion by the doctors, but in this matter the subject is so clear to both parties that it requires no discussion. It only requires, as judge, a man who is honest and fears God. Although we defend the clear truth, the adversaries still have created certain approaches for mocking our arguments. So it needs no discussion, but this is a, a lengthy article, both in the Augsburg Confession and also here in the Apology. And they're also laying it on a little thick. Oh, oh you of mighty character, Emperor Charles. And uh, he wasn't, uh, especially when it comes to uh, celibacy or, you know, even chaste living within uh, his own marriage, uh, wasn't wasn't the most uh, pious example of these things. But uh, they're laying it on thick because they want him to side with him. Uh, but they're going to appeal to God's word and reason to do so. But go ahead and discuss. What, what did we cover there? those uh i the the point that you made about <clears throat> how they're buttering him up you know i i made a couple notes because it was just funny if they're talking about the lack of chastity and all that stuff that they're like almost oh, chaste emperor you would never your ear would never listen to something like this you know and so it's just kind of funny to listen to that but um that uh uh that they are curie that live like bacchanals it's kind of interesting i was looking up trying to figure out what the the picture was there and it's like uh idol worshipers you know in the middle of uh drunken feasts and like that kind of thing um so bacchanal uh, is the same it comes from the same root as debauchery uh, and the the god of wine bacchus and so a bacchanal is a drunken party took the words right out of my mouth right <laughs> <laughs> No, but no, uh, you did. We have a lot of these worshipers among us still today, right? Yeah, and so, uh, but that those were two things that really stood out to me when I was reading through. Great. All right. <laughs> I, I think that's the real. other thing uh, to to kind of talk about here is 
it seems that underneath all of this, something that Melanchthon doesn't uh, mention explicitly but does deal with is the amount of scandal that has gone on in the church where they say that the priests are celibate, but they're really not. Uh, I know that one of one of my favorite medieval uh, quotes talks about one of the popes who actually argued that the papacy would become hereditary. When you stop and think about that, though, the popes are priests who are supposed to be celibate, who therefore don't have children, and for it to be hereditary just doesn't work. But it was fairly common knowledge that there were arrangements, uh, especially in the uh, in the medieval period, where popes would have uh, people... Uh, women that they had relationships with. And it was scandalous in the church. Melanchthon is dealing with that. Uh, Christ's church goes through scandals today. Uh, that happens in the Roman Catholic Church, and we grieve for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Roman Catholic Church who continue to go through these scandals, just as we grieve with uh, others in Christ's church who go through these scandals. These are These are terrible things. And I think it's important to say that Marriage isn't a magic bullet that will stop all relationship scandals, uh, but it is something that by saying no priest or no clergy person should marry does cross a line of what scripture commands, teaches, and says. Yeah, I think you hit on a point there, too, where we still see these scandals go on. And, and, and of course, marriage is not a magic bullet because we see the institution of marriage not well held in honor as scripture calls us to and the marriage bed is not left undefiled in and sadly even among clergy and and we we certainly do need training and right living pious living according to god's word for what he says is good um, but when these things happen i, I often give this image to of when, you know people kind of get scandalized by the church and they they don't come to the church anymore and it's like okay so i go out to a restaurant right or even if i'm eating at home and i get food poisoning because something's not prepared right, you know, okay, that's that's a product of living in a sin-broken world that these things happen. Does that mean I never eat again? No, I need that to live, right? And so um, maybe I'm a little more cautious in, in how I approach foods and, and, you know, some of the restaurants I eat at or things like that. But, uh, um, you know, we, we don't just abandon it. Likewise, we, we see how unable to guard against this, you know, for for especially here in the United States, when it comes to food preparation and so forth, we have people that come in and evaluate and give grades to restaurants. And, and even the highest graded restaurant in terms of cleanliness and things can still have things that happen, right? We can't guard against the brokenness of this world. And so, you know, you know, having this command, this legal attack upon the church um, that goes against what is very natural. So it's not a magic bullet, as you say, uh, you know, marriage toward uh, sexual desire, but it is the healthy outlet of that desire that God has given us so that we would procreate, have children and families, and, and that this is good and we need to live rightly in that. Um, it's not the magic bullet, but but it's, it's creating a larger problem if you're taking even that outlet away. Well, and it's kind of amazing when you think about the fact that this isn't new. I mean, the, the problems that nothing's new in the world. You face the same kinds of problems. They might look a little bit different, but we continue to see the same issues in the world because we are all, as you were talking about, sinful and broken. So we 
Uh, I think about the fact that with the Enlightenment stuff, you know, like, oh, mankind's going to get better and better and better, and then we have a war, and it's like, well, that we got it out of our system. Now we're going to get better and better and better, and then we have another war, and then, and then people still hold on to that, like, oh, we're going to get better, and we just have to perfect ourselves, and here's how we're going to perfect ourselves to be the best, you know, and yet uh, we, we continue to fall, we continue to fail, and you see that uh, certain issues... It's uh, someone might be tempted to say, well, the issues we see today are brand new. It's never happened before. It's like, actually, no, these were big issues even 500 years ago and before that are still cropping up. And uh, like those who would hold on to the we can perfect ourselves enlightenment thing, like, well, if we just keep on doing the same thing, we'll get it right sooner or later. It's like, no, we're still going to have this brokenness. We still have to have that repentance and faith and forgiveness and all that. I'm not quite sure. It's just the Enlightenment. I think we've been doing well, that right. since Genesis yeah. three, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I just was thinking. I was. Just, that is that, a clear example right. of it. Definitely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think also that in these first six paragraphs of this article, it lays out the concern about scandal and that we don't want to do anything that's going to cause the world to despise, dislike, or hate the church. Uh, in the words of Jesus, he said that they will reject you because first they rejected me. Uh, we don't need to give the unbelieving world a reason to not like the church, but as sinners, we still do a pretty good job of it. But this article is going to take a little bit of a turn as we keep going. Instead of just talking about don't do this because it creates scandal and it creates the opportunity for scandal, it's going to go on and actually talk about how good and valuable marriage is. Uh, not only for everyone, which it is, but also even especially for priests and pastors. And so it's it's I think we're kind of at a hinge point in the argument itself of, yeah, this is scandalous, but let's talk about the really good thing that marriage is. And and I part of me is concerned. I don't want to come into this conversation and say, well, yeah, if you just let us get married, then all the problems are going to go away. But rather, marriage is a really good thing, and that is the clear, consistent teaching of Scripture. And let's make sure we not miss the forest for the trees, but say, hey, marriage is a really good thing. Right. And, and I think, you know, to connect it together uh, here, too, you know, we see things in here and sometimes, you know, I, I've heard from uh, I had a really good friend that uh, is a Baptist pastor had still have. Uh, I assume we're still friends, um, but we have really good discussions. He's like, oh, you as a Lutheran, you're always, you're always just looking to accuse people. And we hear some of that tough language in here, you know, how they're they're rude and cruel men. Right. And things like that. But what they're doing is they're setting up this point that they're going to make. And it seems like a hard turn because it it seems like they're just accusing them and making this point of, you know, oh, see all the scandal that it creates. But they're actually saying the scandal is there, um, one, because we live in a broken world, but but mostly because you don't understand what God says about marriage. And so then they back up and they say, okay, now let's lay out what does God say about marriage? And and you will see that, again, not this magic bullet idea by any sense of the, or, or stretch of the imagination, but that, but, but that when we have a right understanding of God's word for however we're called to live, that leads to right living, uh, that, that leads to a comfortable conscience that says, okay, this is good that I have this desire, but it, it is to be carried out only in ways that are godly and God-pleasing, right? So how about we just go ahead and, and go ahead and read the next paragraphs then, setting up uh, this, this next turn here. So why don't you go ahead and do that, Pastor L? Sure. Uh, picking up at paragraph seven. First... Genesis 1.28 teaches that people were created to be fruitful, and that one sex should desire the other in a proper way. 
We are not speaking about lustful desire, which is sin, but about that appetite that was in nature in its perfection. They call this physical love. This love of one sex for the other is truly a divine ordinance. But since this ordinance of God cannot be removed without an extraordinary work of God, it makes sense that statutes or vows cannot remove the right to contract marriage. The adversaries object to these arguments. They say that in the beginning, the, commandments, the commandment was given to populate the earth. Now that the earth has been populated, marriage is not commanded. See how wisely they judge? Human nature is so formed by God's word that it is fruitful, not only in the beginning of creation, but as long as this nature of our bodies exists. Humanity is a fruitful is fruitful just as the earth becomes fruitful by the word, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, as it says in Genesis 1.11. Because of this ordinance, the earth not only started to produce plants in the beginning, but as long as this natural order exists, the fields are covered every year. Therefore, just as human lives cannot, as human laws cannot change the nature of the earth, so without God's special work, neither vows nor human law can change a human being's nature. You desire to pause there? Okay. I, I, right. It's up to you. I think that there's a lot to talk I about. I think there, there is too. Yeah. Um, one of the things that comes to my mind uh, when they're beginning this argument here with that Genesis 1 text is exactly what we say in the uh, marriage rite that we have in the church. And it says, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and before his church to witness the union of this man and woman in holy matrimony. This is an honorable estate instituted and blessed by God in paradise before humanity's fall into sin. And that's, that's a good place to start, taking us right there to Genesis 1. And then we'll proceed forth into, um, you know, that this isn't just a at the time of creation argument. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to put us on hold, though, because we're coming right up on a break. We need to take a break. Come right back after this, though. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Hi, this is Bart Day, President and CEO of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Every day, our Lutheran schools reach out to children and families with the love of Jesus. Our schools are a rich and vital component of the church, and in fact, they are the single greatest ministry we share that can shape the future growth and expansion of the Synod. And so whether it's a customized loan to fit your school's particular needs or help living out your ministry's God-given purpose, we want to help your ministry flourish and grow. So visit us at lcef.org to learn more. What's the connection between God's commandment on coveting and the first commandment? Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series on the Lutheran Confessions, talking with Pastor Paul McCain of Concordia Publishing House about the Ninth and Tenth Commandments. We'll also have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Moses and the Burning Bush. Issues Etc. Live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. 
This week on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. Why does ancient music matter in the church today? And hear stories of cross and comfort from Deaconess Kristen Wasilak and Heather Smith, authors of He Restores My Soul. We'll take a look at the new book, A Christian Guide to Mental Illness with Dr. Stephen Saunders, and we'll meet the missionary in studio with the Reverend Charles St. Ange. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Knighted Sir Wilfred Grenfell in 1927, he was a revered English medical missionary. Just as he was ending his training at London University in 1885, he attended a meeting conducted by American evangelist Dwight L. Moody. It changed the course of his life. Serving as a surgeon on a ship sent to North Sea Fisheries, Grenfell was so impacted by the poverty he saw that he founded the Grenfell Association. His efforts resulted in raising funds for numerous hospitals, hospital ships, orphanages, and schools. In an article written before his death on October 9, 1940, he wrote, I love the Bible. I believe it contains all necessary truth about the way a man should walk here below. To me, it means everything. Take it away, and you can have all else I possess. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Concord Matters with most of our cohort of Christ Confessing Concordians, Pastor Mayor Dembski, Pastor Peter Ill, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith. And we continue to talk about this article uh, from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 23 of the Marriage of Priests. And uh, we, we just read this section, and I didn't pay attention to the clock and had to go right up onto the break. And I apologize for that very awkward break. Um, but uh, we'll try to be a little more smooth here in the second half as we come back here now talking about this article. And we, we were talking about, um, and, and, and it's kind of in brackets here, if you're reading along, if you have your Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions Reader's Edition from CPH um, that you're reading along with us, you would see that in brackets, this section that we just read begins with arguments for the marriage of priests. And so as, as uh, pastoral transitioned us into this, um, this really is our, it, it seems like a hard shift, but it really flows forth from the argument of there's all this scandal, but why is there this scandal? Because we don't understand um, what God's good gift of marriage is. And so they're going to lay down in several points um, what God does say about marriage. And then if we understand what God says about marriage, we'll understand why we say it's good for priests to be married. But this first point that they have, they begin it right there in Genesis, and, and it took my mind right before the break to what we say in the marriage right, that that's always a good place to begin. This is God's design in creation before the fall. This isn't tainted by sin, uh, this gift of marriage. And uh, and so then we ran up on the break, but Pastor Dembski, I know you were dying to jump in here. Well, uh, anytime... We even talk to people who would say, Jesus doesn't talk really about all the issues that pertain to marriage. It's like, well, he does because he immediately points us back to Genesis 1. You know, he immediately points us back to the very beginning and what marriage is. And so this picture that we cannot uh, suddenly make an edict or law that changes nature, you know, we can't say, well, now we're going to make a decision that uh, this is not how we feel or behave, you know, um, that... It, it's just not possible. This is what naturally has been built into us. And so, um, and that they make that, that specific point that this isn't 
like talking about lustful intent and all that stuff, just the fact that naturally the, the, the natural desire for the opposite sex, you know, that kind of thing. I also like what they do here with a, a really good move and it, and it ties it into creation, but they kind of have a kind of a, a backhand argument is, is the way I'm going to phrase it uh, right there in paragraph eight. They say the adversaries object to these arguments. And then they say, they say that in the beginning, the commandment was given to populate the earth. Now, I've still heard this in the church today that, you know, that that whole command to be fruitful and multiply. It was only to populate the earth at the beginning of creation. And then only after the flood and Noah and his family got off the ark that 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 was specific commands at that time. But nowhere do we see that command undone. But they're not really taking that argument up here, but they use it to transition into a really great theological point. I think now that the earth has been populated, marriage is not commanded. It says that's the rest of it. See how wisely they judge human nature is so formed by God's word that it is fruitful not only in the beginning of creation but as long as this nature of our bodies exists humanity is fruitful just as the earth becomes fruitful by the word let the earth sprout forth vegetation plants yielding seed Genesis 1:11 I love that move there because it's like oh you, you're making this argument about how it was commanded once for then, but but guess what? God's word is so active; it's still active in you, and you know it's just it's a genius move. I think trying to outlaw marriage is like trying to tell the grass not to grow. I, yeah, I, th- exactly. That's the argument that's they're good, making. That's here. a good translation. And uh, we're going to get more into the is this command and is this be fruitful and multiply still binding? There's more coming uh, when we get to that. But God has made people with this desire and with the command to be fruitful and multiply just like he made plants to be fruitful and multiply but people are uh, the crown of his creation crowned with glory and honor well, go ahead sorry sorry I'm done oh okay um all i was going to say was that it's kind of um interesting because we actually have to make this point now in our culture that is so prevalent of dividing sex from children and sex from marriage to actually try to connect the dots. And I was amazed the first time I had a conversation with a person who actually said sex doesn't produce children. And it was like, it does. It's like, well, it doesn't have to, you know, and, you know, and, and to actually have to connect those dots to say, no, this is what naturally happens that uh, can you throw well, to go with that the the grass growing thing? Can you throw seed on the ground and the grass doesn't grow? Yeah, it can, but that's what naturally happens with water and dirt and seed. You know, it grows, and with uh, with marriage and sexuality comes children. Like it's something that naturally happens. It's what takes place. It's what's built in. You know, and so we actually have to connect those dots for people now. And and there was someone I talked to. It actually like a little light bulb went off. I was like, oh wow, I never thought about that. It's like that's that's just the way things happen. You know, like so. Yeah, and and you know we we talked about earlier, you know the the enlightenment move and things like that, and that always goes back to Genesis three, and even our view of sex. You know, we we can talk about as we live post sexual revolution how that has been so reformed as as to following our passions and desires and and, and pleasure in sex rather than for being fruitful and multiplying, right? You know, for having family, for having children. Uh, again, because we live in under a sin-broken world and that doesn't always happen doesn't mean that it's for a different purpose, right? And and so, but this too is a problem at the time of the Reformation because clearly priests are pursuing this in this nature. Um, it's, it's a problem, 
we see it all the way back in Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth. And so, yeah, this this um, distortion of what God's good gift of sex is, um, is, is part of living under the, the curse of sin. And so it's good to go back to what is natural? What is part of the natural design? And that's kind of the key to their first point here is because um, they're going to build these points. It's a, it's a classical argument built up, right? And so all the points are going to build upon one another. And so the first point is simply this is natural right from the beginning. This is what God's design is for, uh, is, is for the population of the earth, for having children. And we shouldn't disconnect that from what this gift of marriage is. It only makes me chuckle that we talked about this is the first point in this building argument for the thing that in this matter is so clear that there's no discussion required. (laughs) And that's the first point of, you know, (laughs) right. And and it's kind of like we said, you know, even in the setup to these points, right. Is that, uh, um, you know, it, it seems like they're just kind of being harsh towards the opponents and saying, look, it, 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 you know, the scandal alone gives reason that there's clearly something wrong. But they do want to actually make a really good point about why is God's good gift of marriage good for humanity? And then let's approach it when it applies to the clergy from that perspective rather than, you know, kind of the reactionary kind of, oh, there's a problem. You know, let, let's do this. And. I think part of the concern is in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, on and off for quite some time, since before the Reformation, there has been a move to, to value celibacy, uh, and, and chastity, but not, not merely chastity, but the idea of someone choosing to, to not ever get married, uh, as a commitment to God. And St. Paul does speak about that. It's not a, it's not a bad thing, but to, value chastity to say that somebody who is chaste or celibate is a better christian than someone who is not that goes beyond what saint paul says and there's a connection between uh, monasticism or becoming a nun and the valuation of celibacy especially as it gets seen in piety that roman catholics pay to mary and I realize it's a little bit of an aside, but I think an important one that this uh, respect of Mary and the respect of celibacy are linked hand in hand. And in periods in church history where Marian piety is really strong, then there's also going to be an emphasis on celibacy when that Marian uh, following falls off a little bit, then monasteries and convents don't have as many new people entering as well. There's kind of an ebb and flow that's linked together. Certainly. And, and, um, to, I, I think I, I zoned out there for a second. Oops. Did you, did you identify Marian as in like Mary, mother of our Lord is Mary, this piety? I think I did, okay. but if not, yes, Let, let's I, put that's a point on it. Anyway. Yeah, All right. Indeed. Yeah. So now that I'm back with you, <laughs> all right. Uh, but yes, this is a point. I mean, and again, you know, even just from a personal piety thing, I think you make a helpful point there too. And maybe that's where I was thinking this and that's why I zoned out. Um, you know, again, you know, even Jesus himself says, you know, there are eunuchs, you know, of different types, right? Um, some who are made eunuchs and, and some who, you know, that, that's just choose simply, right. That, that choose to be. Right. My words were failing me. Thank you. And, uh, and so, you know, if, if in working out my own kind of way of life, 
you know, if I don't have that natural desire and and I make that personal choice myself, that that is a personal piety. That is a a way that I choose to live in in a God pleasing way, and I'm completely fulfilled in Christ, and that's okay. But to come and command that upon me, I mean, you just know this naturally, right? Um, that anytime children, right, if, if you impose a law upon them, there's always going to be the naughty children who are, and it was usually me when I was a kid, right? My parents might maybe listening, they can affirm this, right? Um, that, uh, you know, it, they, they usually will push against it just simply because it's a, a command, a law upon them, right? And, uh, and we just kind of have this as a part of our sinful nature that we'll push back against that. And so why not encourage what is good, pious living for whichever way you choose? And if you feel this desire, hey, guess what? Good news for you. God's gift of marriage is good. It's natural. All right. So let's pursue that in a God pleasing way. Oh, you're okay with being single and you don't feel the desire for marriage and, and family. Guess what? That's okay too. You're fulfilled in Christ. Um, let's, let's pursue that in a God pleasing way, but to impose one or the other, um, kind of takes us back to that, that first argument that leads into this, you know, and to impose one another is unnatural and rude and just against God's word. And so we're going to continue building this argument. Uh, do you want to go ahead and read for us? Uh, how about you take us 9 through 13 here nine on the second point? Okie doke. Can do. Second, because this creation or divine ordinance in humanity is a natural right, jurists have said wisely and correctly that the union of male and female belongs to natural right. Natural right is unchangeable. Therefore, the right to contract marriage must all, always remain. <clears throat> Where nature does not change, that ordinance which God gave nature does not change. It cannot be removed by human laws. Therefore, it is ridiculous for the adversaries to babble that marriage was commanded in the beginning, but is not now. This is the same as if they would say, Formerly, when people were born, they were born with gender. Now they are not. Formerly, they were born. They brought with them natural right. Now they do not. No craftsman, in a uh, parenthetical statement, Faber, could produce anything more crafty than these foolish things. They were created to dodge a natural right. Therefore, let us point, let this point remain, that both Scripture teaches and the jurists say, says wisely, the union of male and female belongs to natural right. Furthermore, a natural right is truly a divine right because it is an ordinance divinely imprinted on nature. Because this right cannot be changed without an extraordinary work of God, the right to contract marriage remains. The natural desire of one sex for the other sex is an ordinance of God in nature, and for this reason is a right. Otherwise, why would both sexes have been created? As it has been said before, we are not speaking of lustful desires, which is sin, but of that desire called physical love. Lustful desire has not removed this physical love from nature, but inflames it, so that now physical love has greater need of a cure. Marriage is necessary not only for the sake of procreation, but also as a cure. These things are clear and so well established that they cannot be disputed. It does seem kind of interesting, though, that uh, we end with they cannot be disputed, but the very argument that is made with with the seeming eye that, well, surely nobody would say that, that there aren't two genders. Uh, I can't help but read this in 2018 and think, wow, it it hadn't fully clicked for me that for somebody to start with the argument of 
marriage was created in the beginning for procreation when the earth was empty, but we don't need procreation anymore, uh, can find a can find an end in, well, there used to be two genders, but now we don't need two genders anymore. And it really puts us in an interesting place in our own church history. Well, and it's, it, I actually wrote in here, wow, dot, 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 the world got there, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> like the, when I read that, not having remembered that, and now with the lens of reading this in 2018, going, this is foolishness. It would be almost like saying people used to be born with gender, but now they're not. It's the same exact kind of, and it's like, wow, now we actually have to debate that in the middle of a debate on marriage. <laughs> you yeah, know. I, I uh, underlined here that um, the, this passage at the end of 10, no craftsman could produce anything more crafty than these foolish things. I think Melanchthon underestimated the craftiness of Satan a little bit here because this is exactly what he does. As soon as you 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 create a logical argument, right, that, that surely no one would refute this point, right? Well, then Satan works his way with the world, right, uh, that cooperates with him and unravels that too so that you can't even make that logical point anymore. And it's kind of the way in this world is that, you know, you constantly have to be fighting against sin, death, and the devil, right? You have to, have to be uh, working against, well, the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh that constantly unravels these things for us. As, as we're looking at it, it's like clearly they're, they're, this point makes the, makes the case clearly for us. Oh, wait, now, now we have to deal with that too, right? It, it mm -hmm. does. It just kind of goes on down the line. And the point that Melanchthon ultimately drives at is scriptural teaching about marriage doesn't change. Uh, but I, I'd like to read this a little bit carefully as we as we talk about marriage not changing because it's not that we talk about marriage primarily because it's a good gift from God or primarily because it is a way that God allows for procreation or that God uh, cares for the people that he has made but even more so First and foremost, God has given us the picture of marriage to talk about Christ and his bride, the church. And because of Christ's perfect union with his church, who he has made perfect and holy without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, then our imperfect picture of human marriage is elevated. So when we look at marriage, we look first and foremost at Christ and his bride, the church, and then we look at our marriage. And so we don't say, oh, we're married, so we serve as a picture of, of Christ in the church. Instead, we say, here's Christ in the church. This is a picture of marriage for us. And with an eye fixed on that, we look first and foremost at our Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, whose grace does not go away, who does not leave or forsake or abandon his people. And from there we say, oh, if that is the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, then look at the gift that we've been given in our marriage that doesn't change. God never takes away marriage. He never changes the purpose of marriage. He says Christ bears fruit in his church and husbands and wives bear fruit and multiply in their marriage. And so it all flows from Jesus into the Christian life. Well, it even helps us understand those things that we're called to, those sinful temptations that we're called to fight against. And it points out here, you know, uh, in 13, lustful desire has not removed this physical love from nature, but inflames it so that now physical love has greater need of a cure. And so when we understand that relationship of Christ who perfects us, right, and, and his bride, the church, um, that's, that's the way that I then look at my marriage, right? And I say, okay, 
I have in this imperfection, this sinful nature, which has been crucified with Christ. He has made me perfect by the blood that he has bought me with as his precious bride, right? Um, I should put that off, right? And St. Paul does this all the time. He, uh, in the one year lectionary, we actually had this in our, in our epistle reading, St. Paul making this move of, you know, we put off the old nature and put on the new, right? That's exactly what happens in marriage. Um, you know, we, we, we formerly lived this way. Now we live this way. And so when we understand that these lustful desires are part of our sinful nature, those are put off when we're perfected in Christ. We don't want to live that way anymore. We want to live as his, his bride that he's called us to be right. And, and so then, um, what they're kind of making this move here then too, is to say, and yet, you know, if, if that, you know, has no healthy outlet. And, and I want to kind of identify this cure because we kind of knocked it in the setup here that, you know, it, it's not the magic bullet. Um, what they mean by cure is really, you know, I have no outlet for the good holy desire toward sex, namely, that I do have. And so then it inflames, you know, it just kind of, you know, like stokes the fire all the more um, to to go into these lustful desires that are part of the sinful nature that I want to put off, whether I'm celibate uh, or, or not, right? And so, um, yeah, we don't want to inflame that. We want to see where is the healthy outlet for this to live the way that Christ has called us in a holy way to live as his perfect bride. And it makes marriage and sexuality so much more, sorry, so much less complicated when we think about it in these terms, because otherwise the world would have us ask all this litany of questions of context and appropriateness and when it's right, when it's wrong, you know, approval and disapproval, all this stuff. It's like, is it marriage? Is that marriage, you know, in the, uh, in the eyes of God, you know, like that kind of stuff. It, it becomes so much more simple, not that it's easy, you know, and that kind of thing, but the, the answers to the questions become so much more simple and straightforward. And um, so anytime there's a push against any kind of sexual sin, it's not a matter of, well, this versus this versus this. It's just here's the model and it's outside of it, you know, and it just makes it. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like we were talking about earlier, you know, that, uh, you know, it, it's another way that the world tries to look for a cure anywhere except for in Christ himself. Right. And so, yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting when they when they get all up in arms about all this, you know, is sex consensual or not? And all those other sorts of litany of questions that you were talking about there. And it, and the church is sitting here the whole time like, yeah, we've been talking about this for a long time, but we're not looking for our cure in asking these questions. We already know that our cure in Christ and he has said this is what it is and we endeavor to live according to that in our poor versions of it uh, as you say um, but uh, but is a really good version of it when done according to his word which blesses and sanctifies it makes it holy uh, even my imperfect marriage with my wife when sanctified by God's word becomes this perfect thing. It's just an amazing thing of how it works. And that again, takes us back to that argument right from the beginning. This is what God's word does. It, 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 it is fruitful within our lives and, and creates this very good and holy thing. Okay. All right, guys. I, I that, agree. I was unanswerable there. Indeed. That, that's it a kickback to the old days Indeed. where we, where we had these names. Well, we have just a few minutes here left, right? And so, uh, rather than move on, because this next third point is really quite lengthy. How about we go ahead and take this to some of the, the, um, 
topics of our day, uh, right? We see what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church still to this day. Um, how would you guys apply some of the things that we've talked about here to some of the things that we see going on still within the Roman Catholic Church today when it comes to they're still not allowed to marry, and yet we still see problems and, and, and wrestling going on there? Pastor Hill is making a thinky face. I am. So we're letting him <laughs> I do am. that. Um, it's a complicated question because part of me doesn't want to uh, walk into somebody else's uh, fellowship and tell them tell them how they have to be. Uh, but that's what we do here in the Augsburg it is what Confession. We do in the Augsburg Apology Confession. Um, and and I and it's not that we are simply walking into somebody else's fellowship and saying this is how it ought to be. Instead, we're saying. Hey, folks, this is what God's word in scripture says. And so I, what I wanted to start by making clear is we aren't walking in by throwing stones. We're saying, hey, guys, let's read scripture together. Or hey, folks, hey, church, let's read scripture together, because that's what we are called to do. And in general, the Roman Catholic Church does have a really good picture of what marriage is throughout, but not for their priests. And it does seem inconsistent. And I think that starting that conversation of these two things of marriage being important and a, a gift from God on the one hand, but not being for priests seems inconsistent. And to raise that as an issue is, is one place to start. Um, I think another though, and another helpful thing is not to point at, uh, the scandals that our brothers and sisters in Christ go through and say, see, we told you so. If you would have, uh, taken care of, of this 500 years ago, then we wouldn't be in this situation now. Instead, I think it's appropriate to say, wow, still the church is affected by sin. And not to, not to give any kind of impression of gloating or, or anything like that. And every once in a while I see just a hint of that. And I think it's a, an important thing to say, no, when any part of the body of Christ hurts, the whole body of Christ hurts, let's grieve with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. While it's, we don't want to gloat, and it's definitely not something to celebrate, I, I think about the fact that all the Willow Creek stuff was going on at the same time. You will... No, okay, so the Willow Creek Association stuff was going on, and it's like you on you had on the one side uh, uh, controversy that was going on in the Roman Catholic Church, but you also had this big controversy in this large, reputable church body in the Protestant Church going on at the same time, you know. And so, um, it's it does help to keep us humble that we all have struggles against sin. But the one thing, uh, Pastor Eliud said about we're not going in to throw stones into your fellowship, but we're reading scripture together. And I think that's helpful to remember that it's not like, okay, you've got your truth over there and I've got my truth over here. And I'm going to say that your truth's not as good as my truth or something. We're saying, nope, here's what scripture says. And we want to approach it. And I know if, when we get further into this article, it deals with where the theology comes from and where it's being built on. So we're not just suggesting you're doing this thing for no reason. Like there is a reason that was coming up. Yeah. I I would say probably one of the chief points of the Lutherans at the time is a, a good word that I'm going to steal from you, Pastor Ill, is it's an inconsistency. I would say that that would be Luther's own point of how can we teach that marriage is so good for our people, but not honor it? 
for ourselves. Let's take a look at what God's word says. God's word says that marriage is good and that uh, it is good for all of his people. And this is the way that we live in the church. And especially that's the way that we live in the church every single Sunday. You want to live in a perfect marriage. You want to live in a good marriage. Go celebrate that marriage that you have with your bridegroom, Christ, in the divine service. Thanks for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 